Well, we are doing a series on Nehemiah, and uh, I think it's been a fun story. The first three chapters are, are great reading. It's exciting. Um, Nehemiah is a Jewish man who is living in the kingdom of Persia. The Jews had been exiled from their homeland in Israel in about 600 BC by the Babylonians. Babylonians came, conquered them, took them away, took them, kind of spread them out throughout the, the Middle East. Uh, but then in 530 BC, the Persians took over. They conquered the Babylonian Empire, and they took over, and they told the Jews, and they actually told all the different ethnic groups in their kingdom, that they could return. Each group could return to its homeland and rebuild its temple and worship its own God. And so some of the Jews went back, but some of the Jews were, were comfortable. They had good homes, and they, you know, they had good financial situations, and so they stayed. And Nehemiah's family was one of those families that they stayed in Persia. They, they didn't return to their homeland. They're living abroad. Uh, and apparently they're doing well because Nehemiah has a pretty good job. I said a couple weeks ago, I said he had a good gig, and I got teased by that uh, for that. But uh, he had a good gig, a pretty sweet gig in the Persian Empire. He's, he's the cupbearer to the king, which is basically the equivalent of a special counsel to the king. Uh, and so by, by 450, 458, roughly, um, the Jews, many of, some of them have returned, not, not all of them, but some of them. And so Nehemiah is serving in the Persian court, and his brother comes and says, Hey, Nehemiah, um, I just want to tell you things aren't going so good in, in Israel. And so Nehemiah says, what's, what's happening? And his brother says, Hey, you know, the, the city is still just in rubble. Uh, we managed to build the temple, but the city itself is just, it's chaos. It's, it's been burned. It just looks horrible. And this is a very shameful thing to the Jewish people. Jerusalem was their ancestral city, their, the, the, kind of their capital since the time of King David. Uh, I think maybe a modern parallel for us would be if to imagine, God forbid, but the United States had a major war. And after the war, we're recovering, we're, we're rebuilding, but Washington, D.C. is still in ruins. And there's, maybe, we, maybe we rebuilt the Capitol building, but everything else is just in ruins. It would be a source of national shame to us for that to be the case. Uh, even even um, the World Trade Centers, after 9-11, they were destroyed. But we didn't just leave them there like that. We cleaned up, and we actually rebuilt uh, a monument there to commemorate that. But it would have been a source of shame to just leave the rubble just lying around. And so for the Jews, it's so shameful for them, so embarrassing for them that their city is just uh, still just a disaster, it's just chaos. And not only that, nobody lives there because it'd be dangerous to, I mean, there's nowhere they can really live and, and there's no protection from enemies. And so when Nehemiah hears this, it's, it, it burdens him. He, he feels just this terrible shame and sadness for his people. And so he begins to pray about this. He has resources, he could do something, but instead of, you know, kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction, he prays and he fasts for four months, prays and fasts and says, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do anything about this? And after four months, he just has this burden still and it's growing and so he, he senses God leading him to do something. So he asks the king, he says, hey king, can I go back? And the king gives his permission, actually gives him resources. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem, tours the city, kind of analyzes how the wall would need to be built, talks to the leaders there. Uh, all the people are on board with his vision. And so they work together in chapter 3. All these different families begin working together to rebuild the wall. It's a really cool story about how God leads someone to serve. And I think for a lot of us, we would like it to just end right there. 
and say, okay, this is the roadmap for how God, you know, how God leads me to serve, uh, gives me a burden, I, I get people on board with my vision, we do it, and we all live happily ever after. That's the end of the story. That's how we would like it to end, but generally that's not how things work when we're led by God. And so in chapter 4, we begin to meet some real resistance to this. Uh, three major rulers, Sanballat, who is the governor of the Samaria, uh, Sam, I can't talk, uh, uh, Samaria, the Samaritans, which would be up north, kind of in, kind of near Galilee, that area. And so he was actually the governor even of Judah, but when Nehemiah goes down, the king makes Nehemiah the governor, and so that kind of ticks off Sunballet. He's not real happy about that. He loses some of his power. And then uh, uh, Tobiah, he's the, the king, or I guess the governor of the Ammonites, uh, and they're under, they're under the power of the, the Persians, but he has kind of regional influence. And so he's not real happy. Ammonites and the Jews are, are traditional enemies. And so he's not real happy to see the Jews getting strong. And then uh, Geshem, and Geshem is kind of a puppet king of the Arabs. The Arabs had moved in uh, to, if you know your Old Testament real well, uh, Edom. Edom is around the Dead Sea. And so the Edomites had been exiled by the Babylonians. And so the Arabs had moved in there. And so you have these three kind of power players that aren't very happy that the Jews are rebuilding their kingdom. And so they and their people begin to come to Jerusalem and mock and make fun of the people rebuilding. Make fun of the Jews and mock and taunt them and ridicule them and just try to demoralize them. And it doesn't work. The Jews keep rebuilding. So then they begin to taunt them. And, 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 and then, then it goes from taunting to threats. And they say, hey, we're going to kill you guys. We're going to attack you guys. And so the, the Jews actually have to be armed. They have a, a sword or a spear while they're working. They have to be armed and ready for that. And so then in chapter 5, um, we begin to see conflicts within the Jewish people themselves. Injustice, rich people oppressing the poor people. All kinds of issues there. And then in chapter 6, where we're at today, the enemies of the Jews now begin to attack Nehemiah personally. And here's why this matters to us. All right, Because some of you are like, Probably most of you are like, man, okay, that's maybe interesting history, but how does it relate to me, really? In the New Testament, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against demonic enemies. Paul had a lot of human enemies and a lot of human opposition. If anybody had reason to, to hate or to be bitter at human enemies, it was Paul. Uh, my boys and I were just reading last night, we do these kind of evening devotions, and we we're reading through Acts right now. And so there's a chapter where Paul goes to this town, and he does a miracle, and everybody gets excited, and he's sharing the gospel, but then these enemies have been following him, because Paul would go from town to town sharing the gospel, and his enemies would literally fall behind him. And so his enemies arrive, and they convince everybody that he's an evil magician, and then people stone him, and he almost dies. So if anybody has a reason to be upset at human beings... It was Paul, and yet Paul says, look, our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not ultimately against humans. It's against the powers of this dark world, about, against spiritual enemies, demonic enemies. Paul saw behind all the human opposition, demonic resistance to the gospel. And so therefore, I don't think it's a, a stretch, I don't think it's a reach to view these chapters 4 through 6 in Nehemiah as describing a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. God prompts Nehemiah to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and God opens the doors for him to do so, but then Satan responds. 
And he causes the enemies of the Jews to mock and to threaten. And when that doesn't work, then, then Satan's forces begin to create uh, conflict and division within the Jews themselves to keep them from working together. And when that ultimately gets resolved, then Satan begins to attack and try to intimidate Nehemiah personally. Just as that God is at work in Nehemiah, Satan is at work in the human enemies of Jerusalem. And I, I emphasize this because I think we often forget that just as that God, just as God is at work in the world, Satan is also at work in the world. We have a real enemy. And I think that's often hard for us to believe in our Western culture. We don't see a lot of obvious power encounters between uh, the kingdom of God and, the, and, and demonic, the kingdom of darkness. I've seen some, but we don't see a lot generally here in the United States, in the West. Uh, generally, Satan's tactics here are stealth and deception and working behind the scenes. Um, kind of the, our general worldview is naturalism, materialism, that all that is real is just the physical world. And so it's, for, it's to Satan's advantage for us to not believe in a demonic realm. And in fact, he's kind of caused our general culture to view the idea of Satan and, and demonic forces as laughable. And we imagine them as kind of having these, uh, you know, horns and and pointy shoes and carrying pitchforks and they're always red for some reason and it's just kind of goofy and silly and cartoonish and that influences us then as american christians we believe the bible or we say we believe the bible but often we feel kind of embarrassed by the idea of demons and some of you maybe even feel a little uncomfortable as i'm talking about them right now but the bible is clear that satan is not a silly cartoon devil He's a powerful, highly intelligent, supernatural creature created by God as good, but who rebelled against God and who is in active rebellion against God right now with a significant number of other spirits under his control. And this demonic realm then exercises a great deal of influence over humans and their societies. And Satan is very, very evil. He's worse than anything in a horror movie. I don't like the genre of horror movie. I don't watch horror movies generally. But uh, recently someone convinced my wife and I to, to give uh, this show Stranger Things a, a, a try. I won't say who, but she works in our office. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so Amy and I uh, Gave it a shot, and we became addicted and watched both seasons in about, in about two days. Um, it, was over, it was over our, our uh, anniversary. Um, and I actually saw a, a, a lot of metaphors, I think, for spiritual warfare. And the monster in the show, I'm just going to, I don't want to give too much away, but he does remind me, or it reminds me of Satan, a highly intelligent alien being with absolutely no mercy or compassion, not a shred of human moral goodness in him. And he's had, Satan has had, has had thousands of years to perfect his methods and strategies, and he hates you. He hates you, or at least his forces hate you, even if he doesn't know you personally. You can't go unnoticed. And his goal is to destroy your life, well, at first your faith, and your life, and your soul, and the faith, and the lives, and the souls of those you care about. You may say, why? Why can't I just you know, slink around? And well, Why does he care about me? Well, for one, you're made in the image of God. Yes, we're sinful, but there's still some of God's goodness in us that shines through us. And Satan hates God, and so he wants to distort anything that bears God's image. 
But even more than that, if you have trusted your life to Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then you are a child of God and Satan hates that. And he would love nothing more than to expose your faith as somehow deficient and cause you to fall away. I don't, I don't think Satan actually knows if you're a true believer or not. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he just sees what, what, you know, what your profession is, what we see. And so he would love nothing more than to try to cause you to fall away. But if he can't do that, then he wants to limit the glory that you can bring to God. To limit your joy and your effectiveness in serving Christ. And that's a sobering warning, but I think most of the time we live like we don't really have an enemy. Our, our goal is to just kind of live happy lives. And when trials and temptations and problems come, we, we act like we, like we don't understand. It's like if, like if we were living in, in, uh, in Syria right now, and there's a civil war going on, and if we just kind of acted like, like we're completely oblivious and naive, and then when something bad happens, a bomb goes off, we're like, wait, what's going on? So you should have been aware. You should have known that there was a war happening, whether, whether you want it to happen or not. So why doesn't God just protect us? I mean, he, he could. Why doesn't he just wrap you in spiritual bubble wrap? So Satan can't do anything to you. Well, I do think God does, actually. I do think he protects us from a lot of things that we're unaware of, that Satan would love to do. The Bible is very clear that Satan is not all-powerful. He is limited. Uh, He's a dog on a leash, so to speak. Uh, God has allowed him to have some power, but not all power. And God does protect us. But sometimes God's protection for you will require your cooperation. There's a mystery to that. We're going to talk in my Bible class today. We're going to be looking at the book of Job. And we're going to be talking about the problem of suffering and evil. And so there's some mystery. We'll get, get into that. But ultimately, it is for our good and for God's glory that God calls us to fight. To stand firm and fight. And there will be pain and there will be some casualties. But it's ultimately for our good and for his glory that we have to fight. In the scripture, God commands us to do three things to resist Satan. First, we're told to put on the armor of God. There's a lot of sermons that have been preached. I've preached on this. But you have to put on the armor of God. If you are a soldier in the military and you go out without your, without your camo and, and your armor and all that kind of stuff, uh, and you get hurt, it's your fault. Not anyone else's. And yet, that's what so many people do with God. And so Paul says, put on the armor of God every day. He says, put on the belt of truth and, and the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, Paul says very clearly, is the Word of God. It's Scripture. The belt of truth then is believing Scripture, knowing and believing Scripture. The breastplate of righteousness is living a lifestyle like that of Christ, following Christ's footsteps. His righteousness is applied to our lives, but then we actually need to live it out. We need to live as Christ followers. If you aren't living a life seeking to honor God in obedience to Christ, you are exposed. It's part of the armor of God. Put up the shield of faith, trusting God on a regular basis, being conscious about trusting God. The gospels, or not the gospels, the boots of the gospel of peace. Knowing that you have peace with God allows you to stand firm. For Romans, for soldiers, their boots were like, were like cleats that allowed them to stand firm. There's a lot of pushing and shoving in, in warfare and allowed them to not get knocked over. Knowing that you have peace with God and remembering that you have peace with God allows you to stand firm in the midst of all kinds of trials and problems. It allows you to not be what James says, a person who gets tossed and forth like a wa- back and forth like a wave. If, you, if, you're, if you're rooted in the gospel that you have peace with God, you can have peace all the time. You don't have to be knocked back and forth. 
Obviously, the helmet of salvation, trusting in Christ for your salvation. And I think that also means your thinking is controlled by your salvation, by the fact that you are saved and by the implications of that. Paul says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And if we were real active in doing that, I think a lot of our problems, a lot of our stress and anxiety would be taken care of. If we would take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. And then Paul says, pray at all times. That's your communication with central command. The second thing Scripture tells us to do, first it says put on the armor of God. Second, it tells us to stand firm in unity. And it says that over and over and over. If you, if you read the New Testament over and over and over, Paul and Peter and other writers say stand firm. And it often says you stand firm, but the you in Greek is always plural. All of you together stand firm in unity. And I've said this before, I've preached whole messages on this, but Roman soldiers fought as a unit. They would march together as a unit. Often they would lock arms together. You'd have your arms locked, one arm would have your spear, the other arm would have your shield, and you would go into battle with your arms locked. Uh, Roman soldiers were not like kamikaze, you know, awesome samurai fighters by themselves. They're just ordinary guys. Germans were the ones who did that. They were big old guys, bigger than me, more my size, you know, and, and naked and painted and huge broadswords. And they're freaky to look at, and they just come and try to knock into you and kill you. And so the Roman soldiers would try to stay, they would try to, to, to stay locked, to hold the line, to stand firm. And that's what Paul has in mind here. Whenever he says stand firm, I think that's his image. That when Satan and these demonic hordes attack you, you cannot resist by yourself. If you're in a, a real human battle, you're not going to run off by yourself. You're, you're a sitting duck. It's suicide. Instead, we need to be fart. Did I say fart? I did. <laughs> you guys are going to let that go, but I've got I to gotta call myself out here. We need to be part of a military unit. A band of brothers and sisters who are committed to helping each other to stand firm, to hold the line. And to protecting each other with the armor that God has given us. Sometimes you're going to have trouble holding up your shield of faith. And someone else is going to need to hold their shield of faith over you and protect you for a while. Or you're going to need to do that for someone else. And that's why being the church is not just coming here on a Sunday morning. It's being in community with other Christians. To encourage each other. To pray. To meet together regularly. And here in, in Nova, we do that in our small groups. And I'm not trying to guilt you into do this, but I think it's for your own good, for your own protection, for the protection of your family, and for the protection of all of us, that we work together to protect each other. So the first thing Scripture says is put on the armor of God. Second, stand firm in unity together. The third thing it says to do is to be aware of Satan's tactics, his strategies. Paul says that. And it's at the top of your worship folder. We're not, he, Paul says, look, we're not unaware of Satan's, uh, Satan's strategies. We're not, we're not going to be taken by surprise. You know, I, I love coaching football, flag football. And, and, and there's so many good sports out there. But for me, football, uh, it just it, it represents so much strategy, right? Every play, you stop the play after every play, and you come up with a new strategy, and you're trying to, div- you're trying to anticipate what your opponent's going to do. And I love that about football. And there's some, some of that certainly, in, obviously even more, I think, in the military, in real warfare. And so this is another reason why the Bible is so important, because it shows us how, if we read the Bible and study it, we can see how Satan attacks God's people so that we can then be ready. We can anticipate those same kind of attacks in our 
lives, and we can plan how to respond. We can be prepared. So that brings us to our passage today, Nehemiah 6. We'll dive in chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to see three different stages of how the enemy tries to attack Nehemiah. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying, out, uh, carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Let's pause there. The first thing that the enemy seeks to do to Nehemiah is to distract and then trap him and trap him. To distract and entrap him. And they say, wait, Nehemiah, wait, wait, what about this? Stop what you're doing. Stop, take a break. Come over here and meet with us over here. Let's talk about this. Take a break. We we, want to distract you. And then Nehemiah knows they're actually trying to trap him. The city of Ono, you know, Ono, don't go up there. Uh, It's it's up about 27 miles northwest from Jerusalem. It was right on the border of Judah and Samaria. Uh, It would be supposedly, supposedly a neutral site. But he knows that this is just a good opportunity for them to to either kill him or to hold him for ransom. And so he knows it's a trap. And so he says, look, I am carrying out a great project, and I would add that God has led me to do. Nehemiah knows that God has led him to do this. He says, I have this great project that God has led me to do. I can't go down. Why should this work stop while I go down to you? And I, I, I think there's... For the application for us, probably you're not, um, anytime soon at least, going to be uh, tempted to go somewhere where you'll be assassinated, hopefully. But I do think that when God puts something on your heart to do, that he's leading you to do, one of the things that Satan will sometimes do is try to distract you and say, wait, 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 what about this over here? What about, think about this over here. And sometimes it's bad, but sometimes it could be a good thing. And you've all heard, I, I know this is maybe a bumper sticker thing, but sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. Sometimes God has put something on your heart and you've prayed about it and you, and you know this is what God's leading me to do. And then as you begin to do it, and Satan says, well, wait, what about over here? You need to take care of this. Maybe it's some sort of a relational drama or some other issue, some other, maybe even a good opportunity. And Satan is just trying to, to distract you and then get you enmeshed and ensnared and, and entangled in that issue so that you can't actually do what God's calling you to do. We need to be aware of that. We need to be like Nehemiah who said, look, I'm carrying out a great project that God has put on my heart. I don't, I, I don't have time. Why should, why should this project stop for that? And then the second section, verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. Unsealed is really important here. Um, uh, you would have a scroll. If you send a message, you'd have a scroll and you'd seal it. And if that seal, that seal would keep the scroll together, and if that seal was broken, it showed that somebody had broken the scroll. They weren't supposed to do that. But in this case, it wasn't sealed, and so it's basically an open letter. Uh, you'd send it, like, like maybe today we'd send an open letter to the editor of a newspaper or something. And so, yeah, it's, it's supposedly for this other person, but actually it's for everybody to, to kind of spread rumors and gossip. Just keep that in mind. So, verse 6, in which was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt 
and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Second thing I think that an enemy will often do as you seek to serve God is to demoralize and intimidate you. So if you go this route, if you go down this road, bad things will happen to you. Bad things will happen. If you serve God, this thing or this thing, or maybe it's just kind of a generalized anxiety, bad things will happen. And I just love Nehemiah's response here. Such a great response. He says, first of all, he says, you are making it up out of your head. You're just making it up. You don't know the future. You don't control the future. Only God does. When Satan or, or whatever demonic, you know, somebody whispers in your head and says, don't go down that road, bad things will happen. Do say what Nehemiah says. You don't know the future. You're making it up out of your own head. You don't control the future. God is the only one who knows and controls the future. And then he says, now Lord, strengthen my hands. Don't let me get demoralized. Don't let me give in to fear. I'm sure that there was a part of Nehemiah that, was, that maybe felt some fear, but he says, God, don't let me give in to that. Don't let me be afraid. Give me the courage. Give me the strength to do what you're calling me to do. Finally, verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Daliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was shut in in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. And the third thing that the enemy will often do to you as you are seeking to follow God's leading, God's given you a burden, and you've, you've done all that you need to do to seek and to, to discern God's leading, and now you're beginning to step out into that, the next thing, the third thing here that we see that the enemy can do is to try to deconstruct and question your calling. Deconstruct. Take it apart. Did God really say? Are you sure God really said? And that's this very first thing that we hear Satan say in the Scriptures. Did God really say? And I, the reason I say it this way, it's some, this passage isn't always clear um, from an initial reading, but this guy, this, this uh, Shemaiah, is a supposed prophet. A prophet is someone who claims to be able to hear God, and apparently he has some sort of a reputation, because uh, enough of a reputation that Nehemiah takes him seriously. Nehemiah actually goes and meets with him. He claims to be a prophet, so Nehemiah meets with him, but he's actually a false prophet. Right? And so he begins to tell Nehemiah, he's basically saying, look, Nehemiah, 
This is a bad idea. I don't think that God told... Did God really tell you to rebuild the wall? Actually, Nehemiah, if you go through with this, you're going to get assassinated. Here's what God wants you to do, Nehemiah. Go into the, to the temple. And probably his implication here is go into the inner court of the temple where only the priests are allowed to go. Go in there, lock the door. That's the only place you're going to be safe. So run away. Don't keep building. Because I don't think that's what God wants you to do. Actually, God wants you to go hide in the inner court of the temple where only the priests are allowed to go in order to save your life. And I love Nehemiah's response here. Man, Nehemiah is such a, such a cool guy. Uh, he's, not, he's a concrete thinker. He's not, he's not an abstract guy. We don't, he's not writing stuff like Paul. You know, this beautiful, deep theology. But man, he trusts God. He's a hands-on guy who trusts God. And I just love his response here. He says, look, because he's got to discern, is this dude really a prophet? Is this really a message from God? And he says, well, should a man like me run away? The leader of God's people, should I, is that something God would call me to do, to run away? Should one like me, I'm not a priest, should I go into the inner court of the temple to save my life? Is that something God would lead me to do? And he says, I will not. God would not lead me, after God gave me this burden, he would not now lead me to run away And then to disobey his word in Scripture by hiding in the inner court of the temple. That's not from God. And he says here, I realized that God had not sent them. These prophets. There's a lot of talk today about hearing God. Hearing the voice of God. And I've taught a class on it. And it's important. We want to be led by God. We want to be able to discern God's voice. His leading in our lives. But discernment is equally important with hearing God's voice. Discerning what is God and what's not God. Because it's not all God. Once you respond to God's leading, seemingly sincere people will question your calling. And they'll tell you that that's not what God's telling you to do. And they'll tell you to do something else. And even doubts will arise in your own mind. Voices in your own mind will come up. And so, yes, it's good to test our sense of leading with other people. Sometimes, it's, sometimes our leading is off. That's why we need to spend time praying and fasting and talking with people. But what people say is not always from God, even if they have the reputation of being a mature Christian. Ultimately, we must test the messages we receive. And the very best way to do that is, like Nehemiah, to test them against Scripture. Does Scripture explicitly forbid this? Because if it explicitly forbids what this message says, then it's not of God. This guy says, go hide in the inner core of the temple. And Nehemiah's like, well, okay, I I know that you're not receiving messages from God because that's forbidden in God's word. But another thing to ask is, does this seem to go against God's character and what God's already been leading me to do? For Nehemiah, he's been led by God to go build the wall. Is it God's character to tell him to run away? Does that seem like something that that God, who's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, would he lead somebody to run away and to violate Scripture while doing it? Nehemiah says no. And he has the discernment to know that this is not of God. All right, let's read the last section here. Verse 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the 50, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They persevere and they get the wall done and they do it really fast. 52 days is pretty fast to get this wall done. It's not a huge wall. Jerusalem at this time wasn't real, real big, but it's done. It's completed. 
And in archaeology, we've actually been able to study Nehemiah's wall. It's not the wall that's currently up. Herod the Great later built on and built over that wall. But from archaeology, we've been able to study this wall. And it's really interesting that this is a, a very sturdy wall, but not a beautiful wall. It's sturdy. It was effective for what it was made to do, but it's not beautiful. The finish on this wall is very, very rough, and it looks like what a wall would look like if it's made by just a bunch of lay people who don't know how to build walls um, smoothly. So they, they were able to, you know, they, the, Nehemiah led them and got the job done, and they do a good job. It's sturdy. It's not going to fall down, but it's not beautiful. It's not like the beautiful walls of Persia and Babylon and really fancy cities. And I think this is interesting. I just bring this up because it could have been, you know, Nehemiah and the Jews could have looked at this wall and said, man, God, you told us to build a wall, but this isn't anything like Persia. This isn't like the wall they have in Susa and, and you know, down in Egypt. This is just very ordinary. And, and they could have been discontented. But I think they were able to be satisfied because they knew they had done their best to do what God had called them to do. And they had accomplished God's will. And they didn't need to compare it to what other people had done. And this is important for us. Because God is going to call you to do things, and when you finish, you're always going to be able to compare what you've done to what someone else has done and and feel inferior. And that's not what God wants for us. He does not want you to to look at your walk and your calling and your work and say, ah, it's just not as good as what, I don't know, Rick D'Amico can do or whatever, right? That's not what God wants us to do, even as a church, right? We're, We're doing things here as a church, and we can always compare ourselves to another church, Oh, Saddleback, they're so cool. Or whatever. Um, That's not what God wants. He has a specific call for us. We do our best and we rest content in what God has enabled us to do. And that's what Nehemiah did. They resisted their enemies uh, and they finished the wall. Let's pray.